Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. And now from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files with your host, David Axelrod. I met David Miliband eight years ago when he was the foreign minister of Great Britain, and it was my assumption that he would someday be the prime minister of Great Britain. He lost a very unusual uh, struggle for party leadership with his brother Ed uh, and left Britain uh, and went to New York to become the director of the International Rescue Committee, an organization formed by Albert Einstein to uh, advocate for refugees around the world. And in that role, he is now in the center of a humanitarian crisis uh, as millions of refugees are routed from their home by violence, famine, persecution. He's also the author of a new book, Rescue, Refugees in the Political Crisis of Our Time. I sat down with David Miliband the other day at the University of Chicago, where he came to speak about his mission. David Miliband, welcome. Good to see you again. Thank you very much. It's very nice to be on this side of the microphone rather than just listening to your podcasts in my in the gym. <laughs> well, I'm glad you're doing that. I do. You look very fit. So I, well, I hope no, I'm contributing. I, I hope wish. I'm contributing uh, to that. You know, this issue of refugees is not an academic issue for you. Uh, your family has a history that informs your passion about this issue. Tell me about that. Yeah, it's strange. I'm a sort of middle-class British person, um, but the first refugees I ever met were my parents. My dad was a refugee from Belgium in 1940. Uh, my mum was a refugee from Poland in 1946 to the UK. If they had not been admitted to the UK, I wouldn't be here today. And so... Uh, this issue of how the world treats those who for centuries were not counted and didn't count, these people who are victims of war and are expelled from their own countries, uh, is personal. And I think that for my childhood, the, the Holocaust, I was born in 1965, so the Holocaust was sort of background music. But actually, looking now, it was quite close. I mean, 20 years is not very long. Yes. And it's it's a long way away now. But actually, when I think back to my childhood, there was a lot that was talked about, but there was also a lot that wasn't talked yes. about. And you've had people on this program who've talked about how there are parts of family history that are so painful that they don't get discussed. And so I think for me, my parents wanted me to have the security that really they never had. My dad was born in 1924. He, he grew up in Belgium. The rise of fascism was the background music to his childhood. My mum, born 10 years later... You know, her, her country convulsed by war in Poland, you know, both Jews and uh, my mother in Poland, um, my mother hiding in, um, first of all, in a convent and then with an incredibly brave family who saved her life in Warsaw. They wanted me to have as secure a childhood as possible. And Did I think, they talk much about that experience? No, they didn't. And my dad talked more because he'd emigrated he'd, he'd uh, been a refugee in the uk in 1940 he he 
learned English, graduated, or got into the London School of Economics, did a year at the London School of Economics, which was then in Cambridge in 1941-42, and then joined the Royal Navy. So he spent th- three years in the Royal Navy, and he talked to me about that, and that was a much more... Um, an easier thing to talk about than, yeah, my, than what my mother was. It's so, so interesting to me because, you know, my father was a refugee as well from Eastern Europe uh, in the early 20s. He came here as, uh, to the U.S. as a boy. Never, unless pressed, ever talked about that experience of being the victim of violence and persecution, having his home blown up, being separated from his parents and reuniting and so on. It was something that he just... It was such an awful experience he didn't didn't want to talk about. The other thing that strikes me about his experience is he got here a couple of years before a very draconian uh, anti-immigration law was passed by the United States Senate. If he, had, if he had tried to come two years later, he would not have been admitted to the United States. Yeah, I mean, it was my mother spent the war in hiding, and so I think that was much more terrain that wasn't talked about. Her father was killed in the war. I mean, amazingly, we've just, in the last six months, had a German historical group discover the documentation of my grandfather's transfer from Auschwitz to another concentration camp and um, surviving members of the family, myself, my brother, my mother, and my aunt. We went to, we went to Germany a couple of weeks ago to see the site of this mm. concentration camp and met some of the generations who've been determined that the truth will be told, generations of Germans. Um, but I know that I had a, a very, very secure childhood, and I think that they wanted me to have the kind of um, foundations that they never had, really. Mm-hmm. And so probably in addition to not wanting to share that history, uh, it was probably either consciously or unconsciously, I'm just guessing, I mean, maybe this was true with my father as well, to say that was part of the past, you have a different you have a different future. I wouldn't say that. I mean, I think they obviously hoped that, but they, they, both of my parents had this strong sense that uh, if you could make a difference, you should, and if you didn't, it was a waste. Mm-hmm. And they uh, both had a. I mean, my dad was an academic. My mother was a teacher. And he he was quite a, a towering presence in academia. Uh, he was a, a, a scholar on on Marxism. Yeah, uh, and. He, but it, your dad is never towering. I don't think, or maybe in my, you don't think of your dad as your dad's your dad. It's someone yes. who you can make fun of. It's someone who you can rib. So people say, oh, you know, you were the son of this uh, academic. It makes it sound like this person sitting in an ivory tower. And, you know, my memory of my dad is taking me to soccer matches on a rainy Saturday morning. In we lived in Leeds for four years, which is a northern industrial city, and we lived outside Leeds and. My dad was the least likely football soccer coach that you could ever imagine. But that's my my image of him is with his head in his hands as the ball went through my legs and I turned around and saw the ball nestling at the back of the net. I mean, so towering isn't the word that comes to mind, although it's incredibly uh, affirming when people say, someone said this to me last week, oh, you know, I read your dad's book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and someone just said to me, I'm going to do something later with the... Uh, Institute of Politics, they said, oh, you know, we'll have to ask you about the Miliband-Pulansas debate of 1973. I mean, a subsection of your readers will know what on earth that was about. But uh, that, obviously, I suppose I had a sense that he was someone who was a serious person who did serious work. But he he wasn't someone who was towering suggests ogre, and that was not... No, no, I understand. But tell me what, um, what what was discussed 
in, in your household, and how much did because he wasn't? My understanding was that he wasn't just a scholar, but he was someone who was very committed to some of the precepts that he studied. He was. He was. Look, he, he didn't just study Marxism. He was a Marxist. He yes. um, he was a member of the Labour Party in the nineteen fifties. He attended the Labour Party conference in nineteen fifty six. Um, but he became a great critic of the Labour Party without ever joining another party. He was a sort of independent socialist, I think you would call him. Uh, my mother was a socialist and a feminist, I think, and probably taught my dad a lot about why feminism needed to be part of any progressive view of social progress. And um, I mean, you know, what was discussed around our, our table, what was discussed around our table was... Other than what the was, ball slipping through your legs well, exactly. and getting the, into the, the net. The, the, the soccer, the homework, yes. diddle, diddle. I don't want to suggest that every dinner table was a seminar. Yes. But um, politics was discussed. They did have friends from South Africa who were living in, under apartheid and fighting apartheid. They did have friends from Eastern Europe who were living under communism and were fighting against it. Uh, so uh, they did have strong views. Of the, Mrs. Thatcher was leading Britain um, in a backward Direction and so uh, the, the 70s and the 80s were um, secure for me personally, but politically they were very charged uh, times, even in a secure democracy. And so we did uh, live in a uh, political in a household that was quote unquote political, and where politics was not considered off limits. It was very much in bounds. And where people visited who uh, were significant. Yeah, I mean... Uh, Political figures. Yeah, I mean, I was doing my homework in 1979 <laughs> or 1980 on a weekday afternoon, and the bell rang, no one was home, and I went and answered the door, and Joe Slovo, who was the um, leader of the South African Communist yes. Party, was um, a you know, huge dissident, an extraordinarily... Um, controversial figure uh, on the radio. There he was standing there, and he said, oh, you know, is your, is your mom or dad in? And I said, no. And he said, oh, I said, do you want to come in? He, he, so he came downstairs into the kitchen, and we spent 20 minutes talking. I remember he was drinking a glass of water. He didn't want a cup of tea. And he was friends of my parents. So I, I remember, you know, and, and then two, one or two years later, his wife was blown up by the South African security mm-hmm. forces. She was um, living in Mozambique as a, as a dissident. Um, so you knew that politics mattered that politics had was about ideas but for some people it was about life and death and you uh, sp- and then you spent some years here in the US as you were growing up yeah i was i played mayor slade in destry rides again as a <laughs> junior high school student in newton massachusetts in 1977-78 and i was a um, graduate student at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in 1988-89 so there's a sort of transatlantic link for me and it's, it's strange in a way I've come back to live in live and work in the U.S., in New York. I'm not sure to what extent New York still counts as part. It's a sort of special part of the U.S. Um, it's, it's New own, Yorkers certainly it's, it's would say it's so. Own, I'm it's a own, native of New York. I, I, yes, uh, so I gather. Um, but the, 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 America's been an important part of my uh, life, and uh, my wife's a dual citizen, actually. And so... I've had the chance now to be a student in the U.S. and to work in the U.S. And obviously, I'm still a British citizen, but this is the, certainly the second most important country to me in my life. <laughs> what did you, what were your observations uh, when you came here as a, as a 13 year old, as a 12 year old, yeah, as a kid, and then and as as a graduate student later uh, of America? 
in America's politics. Well, it was the land of opportunity in the 70s. That sounds surprising probably for you because you remember you, you know this period 76 to, to 80 as sort of misery years. For someone coming as a 12, 13-year-old from industrial north of England to uh, Boston, Massachusetts, it was the land of opportunity. It was the land of plenty. It was the land where there were carpets in the bathrooms and showers and not that there wasn't hot water in the UK, but it was you had baths, not showers. I mean, it was a... It's hard now, I think, to realize quite the distance between the US and the UK was much greater for most people at that time than probably seems likely today. And the homogenization that has happened, I think, uh, as part of globalization was, yeah. was much less present. And so it was the land of opportunity. It was the land of plenty. Nowhere else had 32 different flavors of <laughs> ice cream. Um, never mind orange juice. And That's why we have an obesity problem. <laughs> It was, um, and it was a land that certainly for me at the time was. I mean, we were living in a middle class suburb, so I, mm-hmm. I, I think it's important to emphasize that I was leading quite a. Sh- I had a sheltered yes. view of uh, the U.S. Um, but now looking back, uh, one of the things that's obviously a major issue today, both in my work and more generally, is to what extent does the U.S. want to be a global power, and to what extent does it actually want to just fix its own problems, and. If I think back now with the benefit of hindsight, it was a it was a community and a, and a country that was focused on itself at the time. And so some of the debates that you're having now, I mean, you know this better than I do, the debates you're having now about America's role in the world are not new debates. Yes. They're old debates. And so <clears throat> I, I would say that I felt self-contained in that bubble in the 1970s. Although I think to an extent that nobody imagined uh, possible now uh, the – we have we have a president who has a very distinct view on this. I mean, there there are two distinct views. One is that uh, even if you were to pursue your own interests, that America has an important role to play in the world because you can't isolate yourself from the problems of the world. That's the one I uh, share. But then there's this America first notion that we're going to sort of look inward and not play the role that we've. Uh, that but I we've think you can. Do, I mean, I, like, I mean, I think you can say that to put America first, you've got to recognize you're part of the world, not separate from it. Well, and not just part of it, because America's played a role since World War II, as you know, you're a student of this, uh, that's been uh, an essential role in, as a convener uh, of uh, global institutions. Yeah, it's the, I call it the anchor of the global system. Yeah. And you're, you're, um, you, the, you'll know... Um, well, your your most recent ambassador to uh, London mm-hmm. uh, corrected me and said, "No, we are the ballast of the global system, not just the anchor of the global system." But they convey they both convey the same um, point, and I think it's really important to say that America has been the anchor of the global system. It's yes, it's borne the burdens of globalization, but it's also reaped extraordinary benefits yeah. as a result of it. And the political challenge, obviously, is a lot of Americans don't think they've reap the benefits yes and that seems to be the anvil on which a lot of modern politics both american and european is is breaking yes we're we're seeing i don't want to jump ahead in the discussion but we're seeing a lot of that uh on both sides of the ocean uh clearly that's a lot of what drove uh, uh president trump's election now we've seen a series of european elections brexit was a reflection of it but just uh just in the last few days the election in austria was one more example where a populist, uh, nationalist right uh, did uh, very well. We saw 
some of that in Germany. So this is this is a this is an issue with all advanced uh, economies. And you're right that Americans there are benefits of glo- globalization, but there's an awful lot of disruption. And I think technology is as big as globalization itself. One of my concerns and uh, is and I'm eager for your thoughts on this. I worry that our democratic institutions are built to be um, a little lumbering, a little bit plotting, so that decisions are made uh, with due debate, consideration, reflection, our checks and balances are in place and so on. And yet technology, communications technology, technology as it affects the economy is moving at such a rapid rate that uh, you know, it puts pressure on democratic governments to be agile enough to respond to the challenges that are being created. It does, but I would argue that it's the route to hell to try and get democratic institutions to work at warp speed. Yes. And in fact, the genius of the strongest democratic systems, interestingly enough, one example is one that our countries helped to create in Germany after the Second World War, mm-hmm. is that it's built to generate long-term consensus, not short-term yes. chasing of the latest fad. And I think that, uh, I don't want to sound naive, because politicians have to deliver over a four- or five-year cycle. Equally, the best politicians are able to link what they're doing over four or five months and then four or five years to a longer time frame. Where I'm concerned is that you can make a a far too powerful argument today that the autocratic parts of the world are better at thinking long-term than the democratic parts of the world. And I think that is a great challenge because even five years ago, but certainly 15 years ago, you wouldn't have been able to make that argument. We're meeting in the week that the Chinese Communist Party holds its 19th Party Congress, and it will present not just a clear vision of China's future, but a clear vision of how China is going to engage with the wider world, including the 62 countries who are part of the One Belt, One Road initiative. And you will see a combination of economics, politics, um, culture, brought together in a very coherent, tight way. And that is a challenge to the Western democracies, both in its core ideology and essence you don't have to believe that uh, china wants to dominate america to see that it's presenting an alternative vision of how to organize society um and it's one that i think we have to take very seriously because you're right to to worry i think that the western democratic institutions are showing themselves neither fast enough to keep up with the technology to go back to your question nor strategic enough to make the long game seem worth betting on and that is obviously the, one of the central challenges for for the modern world. Yeah, well, I think that the uh, the disruption that technology is creating it creates enormous opportunity. The disruption that it creates, though, I think has been under um, underestimated as a force, as a societal force. And then when you overlay communications and the ability through social media to kind of harvest people's anxieties, resentments, you know, you see the opportunity for um, the, the autocratic candidate to say, you know what, 
I'm just going to, we're just going to do this. We're going to take care of this. We're going to take care of you. I think that, uh, that simplicity of message was one of the things that made Trump appealing to the voters that he uh, addressed. His thing was, I will take care of it. Make me president. I will take care of it. Now he's running into the reality of governance, which is, as you know, uh, far more complex. But uh, I think that complexity is um, is what he ran against in certain ways. Nuance is what he ran against. Uh, and, um, you know, the reality of the world as we find it is what he ran against. And there was a market for that, and there's a market in these other countries for it. But we should go back to your story because you, um, you at a very early age, entered into politics through policy. Uh, you came to the Labor Party in Britain at a time when it had, dis- it had had a setback and was reinventing we had, itself. We had four setbacks. We lost four elections in a row, remember? 79, 83, 87, 92. So in 94, Tony Blair asked me 92, to— 92, though, I think there, there was an expectation that you would break that string. Was There, there was, which yeah. might, we, we thought we'd win, and we didn't, because it, actually the last 100 yards for getting into power are in some ways the hardest. Yeah, uh, because it's when the voters take you most seriously, and you're under the greatest scrutiny. I mean, you know it better than I do. Yes. So, no, my job was to run policy for the then opposition. Um, we had to get rid of policies that were would neither work and were unpopular, and we had to find policies that were both popular and would work. And that is the origin of the minimum wage. That's the origin of the investment in youth jobs programs. That's the origin of the reforms to the national health service. That's the origin of the education commitments that we made, and. It became, I would argue, not just a successful period of electoral politics. We won three elections on the trot. But it became, by British standards, a very reforming and positive period. Um, There's a revisionist history which wants to say this was all about Iraq and the financial crisis. Uh, And I think that doesn't do justice to the changes that went on, economic, social, political, that went on within the country. But that's obviously contested terrain. Two things can be true. Uh, it, it, those things could have been a hindrance to labor in retaining power, uh, and yet there's, there, there was progress uh, uh, during those periods. Let me just take yeah. a quick break, and we'll be right back with David Milben. I had interrupted you when, uh, and you were talking about the progress that was made during the uh, the, the Blair uh, uh, Brown years. Yeah, and I, think, and I think this has modern relevance, doesn't it? Because there's one school of thought which says, look, politics since the 1980s, since the Reagan-Thatcher period, on both sides of the Atlantic has been a seamless progression of deregulation, anti-statism, etc., quote-unquote neoliberalism. And there's another school of thought which says, hang on, in the 90s and the 2000s, governments of the centre-left actually made important changes in their societies. And that's relevant not just for historians, because it's important in defining where does progressive politics go today. As you, can, as you know in your own country, as is evident across Europe, there's no point in trying to repeat the old recipes. Social Democrats, progressives are getting beaten when they try to repeat the past. And I think it is relevant to charting a course forward, whether you think it was simply uh, the fact that those governments were prisoners of an alternative ideology, or whether you think they were actually doing what social democrats have done throughout the ages, which is to bring the social dimension into the operation of a market economy. 
Yeah, I want to. I want to get to that in the context of uh, of of your leadership uh, battle there, and and just looking at where we are today in both Britain and the U.S. Yeah, but without forgetting the refugees, which is what I'm no, 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 to no, at the no. We, we we absolutely won't because I actually think that's clearly part of what's going on right now. Yeah, even a more a more pronounced way in in Europe than than here, but uh, on both sides of the pond, but. You uh, you then ran for uh, parliament, and you were elected at an early age, and uh, in, in two thousand and one, and immediately went into the cabinet. What was no, the- I didn't. I spent three and a half years as a junior minister, so not in the cabinet. I see. Uh, so I did some form of apprenticeship before I was given uh, real power. Yes, uh, and. Um, your first uh, cabinet position was secretary State for the environment. Was right. my first, uh, and where you led uh, on the issue of climate change. Yeah, I mean, I think that the uh, Tony Blair asked me to become secretary of state for environment, food, and rural affairs, and I remember saying to him, "Look, I don't know one end of a cow from another. How can you make me put me in charge of rural affairs?" And he said, "Look, you can fu- you can figure that out. They'll be able to explain that to you." But as long we- as you know the end of the cow, where you can capture the methane. Exactly. exactly. That's says, important. You can, yes. you, 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 what we need to do is. Um, really put ourselves <laughs> at the forefront on the climate issue where we're, we, we he, he understood i think that a low carbon economy was not just an environmental imperative it was an economic imperative and i think that that was really a testing ground uh, for me because i think that the politics of the environment is obviously local it is about local schemes for insulation to save people money but it's also about global action. And this was a period we commissioned the Stern report, which showed for the first time the economics of battling climate change actually spoke to the economic benefits of doing so rather than just the cost. Did people, were, were people receptive to that? Because we, you know, I was in the White House uh, with Obama when we were pushing for cap and trade. And um, Well, there was a there was an extraordinary moment in 2006-07 when people really did buy it. Mm-hmm. You hadn't, you had business, you had government, you had people it was before the financial crisis i think it was different for you coming afterwards and there was a real sense that this was not just an, an environmental imperative but an economic opportunity and frankly that's still the view in somewhere in in some european countries it's dropped off the agenda in the uk but in germany um, to some extent in france it's still it's still pretty core to the economics of the future and one of the striking things about your election watching your election last year is that, I think it's right, three times as many people are working in solar than are working in coal. Mm-hmm. But it's more than, it's probably 30 times the amount of political sway that goes for someone who's a coal miner than who's uh, working in solar. But at that time, we uh, managed to get cross-party support. So Labour, Conservative, Liberal, for a bill which bound Britain's carbon emissions to decline by 60%, later refined to 80%, by 2050. We set a 30-year, 40-year course for the way in which we would drive towards a low-carbon economy. That, that's still in, in place, place today. And it was that combination of government leadership, business innovation, and popular mobilization. That, those three points, I think, are always core to any successful reform program. And they were present in a the, – the, 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 the stars were aligned at that period. Uh, President Obama uh, was a leading proponent of the Paris uh, Accord, which obviously took place after you uh, left office. President Trump has now withdrawn from it. Uh, where do you think uh, the world stands now uh, relative to uh, climate action? I'd like your listeners to know that your dog has become incredibly excited and attentive at the discussion of uh, climate change. He's a major, major a- activist I mean, on where this does issue. the world stand? 
well, there's bad news, obviously, because there's the biggest challenge to the Paris consensus that one could imagine in that the United States has withdrawn. Having said that, renewable energy prices are going down. China is committing heart and soul to making an economic as well as environmental virtue of this. Because they see a... They, they see, see a, an economic advantage as well, well as a ex- necessity for them exactly as right. environmental. and Yeah, they see an environment. As yeah. countries get richer, obviously, they tend to the environment in ways that they didn't uh, before. Um, people would – some. it's a more mixed picture, but I think in India there's an environmental movement that hasn't existed before, and Europe has held its cause. And I think that the market forces of low renewable energy prices are a major new feature on the horizon. Ten years ago, we'd argue that we needed to subsidize these technologies because they will become the energies of the future. Low carbon can become an affordable source of energy, and it is becoming so. And so I think that it's a very mixed picture. I think that we shouldn't underestimate the damage that U.S. withdrawal from the Paris Accord can do. It is a it will There is cause a sort damage. of inexorable momentum to... Well, you'd hope yeah. so, but the trouble is there are going to probably be more and more evidence of the damage of climate change, and mm-hmm. we see that every day in our work. Look, the work we're doing in Niger, yes. across the Sahel, climate is a feature of the of daily life for people, and they'll, they'll say to us, look, the water isn't where it was when my grandparents were tending this land. Yeah. And so it's part of the... In fact, you know, in modern the life, military a, intelligence reports on climate change have all warned that climate change will be a, a disruptive uh, element and will create mass migration and the kinds of problems that we're uh, beginning to see. I can't let you go uh, from he- this part of this conversation without asking about Iraq because it is part of the story and one that gets talked about a lot. You said that it was kind of uh, a, maybe a bit of a myth that that was uh, the defining, uh, a defining event. But Tony Blair... Uh, was very much aligned with George Bush in Iraq. You voted to go into Iraq. In in retrospect, forget about whether it was the right vote or the wrong vote. No, it was the wrong vote. What was the impact of that? As you look back now, we're still uh, we we still see the unrest in Iraq. Uh, we see uh, the uh, sectarian struggles that are going on in that region. Well, I think it was the wrong vote, and I think I don't buy the arguments that it was done for malign reasons. It wasn't done for oil, but it was nonetheless uh, a major strategic error. It was a major strategic error because the war in Afghanistan was not concluded, and it was a major strategic error because it undoubtedly emboldened and uh, in- reinforced Iranian strength in the uh, region. Um, I was the education minister at the time. I voted to support the government. But it's undoubtedly the biggest foreign policy mistake of that government. My point is, the government was about more than mm-hmm. that. Now, politically, it's, it, it's been a stick with which it's been beaten. But more important, there are continuing effects that's across the I'm region. Really and that's what you're about. driving at. Yeah. And I think it's, look, it's impossible to explain anything that's going on in Iraq at the moment without some reference to the war. But that's not the same as saying that everything that is happening in Iraq today is the result of the war. But I think that, um, you know, there's no question that the uh, destruction of the Iraqi state, the disbandment of the Iraqi army, the series of decisions that were made, in fact, after the war was won, Mm -hmm. dissolved Iraqi society in a really dangerous way. And those after effects continue to be felt. And the fact that there is safety in Suleimaniyah or Abil or in Dahuk 
which is the Kurdish area of Iraq, doesn't absolve or excuse the fact that there are continuing ill effects from that decision today. And uh, Ayad Alawi, former Prime Minister of Iraq, wrote a book entitled Winning the War, Losing the Peace. And that, to me, sums up what's happened there. You uh, you became foreign secretary under uh, Gordon Brown. Uh, you, were, you, you, you ran headlong into, as we did when we were in the Obama administration, we, we took office in uh, 2009 at the peak of the of the economic crisis. Uh, how disruptive was that for you? I mean, d- looking back, um, did you guys have a chance <laughs> coming when you did? Well, I think that Gordon's leadership on the financial crisis was real. He understood its dimensions and the requirement for international action. Um, for me, what was I working on in 2007? I was working on a peace plan for the Balkans because the Kosovo dispute wasn't resolved. I was working on the situation in Sri Lanka because of the slaughter that was going on there. But the two biggest things were obviously getting us out of Iraq and winding down in yeah. Afghanistan. Um, now, I think that uh, we also knew that that 2009 summit, which was only three or four months after you uh, took office, where the G20 came together for the first time yes. to take bold action, that did involve diplomats all around the yes. world working to the uh, government um, uh, prime ministerial leadership of a serious kind. And in a very small way, I would say I contributed to that. Um, but I certainly wouldn't want to overestimate that. But you're, what it did was it convulsed Western politics and in some ways continues to convulse Western yeah, politics. well, I think what it also did was it caused uh, uh, corporations to rationalize themselves to to withstand the the uh, pressures of uh, of the crisis uh, in ways that actually advanced some of this uh, automation and and uh, I mean I I, I think that um, it changed us in ways that are are not going to be reversed and and accelerated this sense of uh, being on one side of the divide or the other side of the divide. When, so this leads me to the leadership battle. And I'm not going to get into the Cain and Abel deal about you and your brother running against each other for leadership, but you had different views. And it was a debate that it seems to me is still ongoing here, there, over how uh, a progressive party uh, should uh, should move forward. I mean, here we have the the, the sort of Sandersites, Bernie Sanders supporters, Bernieaks, they call them, who very much believe that um, the, the fundamental injustice. There's fundamental injustice to the economic system, and government has an opportunity, uh, not an opportunity, but an obligation to uh, address it. There are others who uh, who shy away from some of the. Measure that, and certainly in Britain, uh, your party, the Labour Party, now is fully in the uh, thrall of uh, Jeremy Corbyn. He's defined it, uh, and he's probably as left as you've seen uh, there. Tell me how you see this definitional battle uh, for uh, the Labour Party, for the Democratic Party here. What are the challenges, and what are the potential pitfalls? I think the way to see this is either through a lens of electability or through a lens of desirability. And there's a temptation in political commentary for it always be to, do, to be done through the lens of electability. So 
many people criticised Jeremy Corbyn before the British general election in June on the grounds that what he was proposing was not going to win majority support. And obviously he didn't win majority support, but he came a better second than Which in politics is a lot. The, well, the, the the perception. Funnily enough, I hope he doesn't mind me saying this, but I just spoke to this morning to the defeated social democratic candidate for the Norwegian prime ministership, and he said to me, to your point, uh, there are no silver medals in politics. Yes, which I think is a. I'm more on that side. There are no silver medals in politics. If you're not in government, then. You, Although Corbyn wasn't really taken seriously as a leader, well, there was this presumption that he could not win. Correct, but nonetheless, and so now he is I mean, somewhat you, you just, strengthened. He, he is. He, he's definitely strengthened because he did better than right. those who doubted his electability. Right. Um, thought I doubted that he would get forty percent of the vote. To be honest with you, but my difference with him. And I think it's more fundamental in a way, which is about whether or not he's proposing the right things for the country. And I think it's that there is a debate on the progressive side of politics about where we pitch ourselves. And it's sometimes framed in terms of austerity, which speaks to the sort of macroeconomic question. But actually, I think it's about much more than that. Jeremy Corbyn's proposal is that the, the top things he wants to do are nationalize industries. Now, I have a pragmatic view of that. I don't think the privatized water industry in Britain has been a great emblem uh, of anything, really. But I think that that's not the route that I would be saying is the top thing to help build a fairer, more inclusive Britain, where I would be looking more at welfare policy, labor market policy, education policy. And I think there is a, a difference. What's undoubtedly true is that Jeremy Corbyn has captured a sense of hope. Uh, especially among young people, yes. and one has to give him that. In a way, he's spoken to the demand for the speaking in primary colours that you referred to yes. earlier. He's tried to defy the complexity that you said is the enemy of um, popular uh, mobilisation. And I think there is a continuing debate on the centre-left about the right way to mould and reform and improve market economies. And that's uh, something where um, none of us are actually winning elections at the moment, neither on, if you like, the centre-left nor the left of centre. So, I mean, there's a sense that's that cor- 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 uh, cor- the corporations there, corporations here, doing very well, very profitable, have recovered from the, from the uh, crisis. Um, but, um, you know, you, we, going back to your father's studies, you know, Marx may have been wrong about his prescription, but he wasn't wrong about one part of his analysis, which is when profit is the motive and labor is the biggest cost, if you can reduce your labor costs, uh, you have more profit. Well, the, the, the bigger point, I think, is that there is a tendency of markets to overshoot. And that is what happens when they're not properly organized, regulated, and governed. And that's clearly been the case in the financial sector before 2007. Mm-hmm. Uh, God forbid that we haven't actually reformed our banking system sufficiently now and built in sufficient uh, safeguards. But I think that there is a fundamental question about the way our Western economies are structured, which is whether or not they're doomed to this spiral of insecurity, inequality, instability. And that's what the argument is fundamentally about. Can you discipline this globalized market economy in a way that it serves the majority of people or not? Do you have to row back on that global opportunity that's been uh, created? And I think it is a fundamental division. In a way, it's not a new division. It's what social democrats have argued with the harder left, the further left, for the last hundred years. And 
I think that the uh, we'll see how Macron does because President Macron, in a way, is the poster French, child yeah. for the more centre-left approach, social democratic approach. He's done it actually by breaking the two parties. Um, but he's trying to reform the French state. He says it's not tenable to be spending 56% of national income through the state. It's not tenable to have the labour markets that we that they have. But we can build a fairer France in the process. Now, that's the... Uh, so I'm Already running well. into some political uh, friction. Yeah but, yeah, but I mean, as you, you know this better than I do, if you're not running into political friction, then you're not doing no, politics. No, no, understood. So, understood. I mean, we'll and, see. And no. He seems to Listen, me to have a very healthy attitude about his popularity rating. He says, look, I'm here to do stuff. Right. Which is, which is always best. Uh, I, think peop- I think that sense of authenticity um, is very helpful and sense of direction. Um, you, left, uh, you left Britain after your brother beat you in this very narrowly in this uh, in this uh, party struggle, and you came and you took over in New York the International Rescue Committee. Why did you? Uh, uh, you know, one one sense getting the, out of Britain. Yeah, Ed won the he won the leadership election in October two thousand and ten, and I found over the next couple of years that I was caught in this uh, position of either being divisive or being silent. Because anything I said was turned into a sort of psycho drama, uh, because it was you and your brother of a different position, exactly. Um, and the alternative is just to then it not is be able to- it is. Now I said I wouldn't dwell on it. I won't. But you can understand why people would be completely sort of interested. Completely. In and that. I, I mean, it, uh, the uh, um, you've you've glided over it. I, I'm, there's no need to uh, glide over it. So. Um, we fought a leadership election. We had different views. We both were very careful not to say things about each other that would then that we'd then come to regret. Um, there was a difference, um, but it did play out in such a way that I felt I couldn't be an effective politician because I was doomed to keep my views to myself, and that's no position in politics. Um, the IRC job came up. The, the organization was founded by Albert Einstein in 1933 to rescue Jews from Europe. But there were three things that immediately spoke to me when I went to visit the website and looked at the organization. The first is that the questions that we address, how do you get education to girls in war-torn parts of Afghanistan? How do you provide medical supplies in Syria? How do you tackle sexual violence in Congo? How do you promote employment of refugees in Uganda or in Jordan? Those are some of the hardest questions in global public policy, so I was attracted by that. Secondly, I felt that IRC was a bit of a sleeping giant, an organization you can't do much better than an organization founded by Einstein. Uh, it had posi- it had the potential to be a leader of the humanitarian sector because it works in 30, 35 war-torn countries. It's not trying to do everything. It's not an anti-poverty organization. It's focused on people whose lives are shattered by conflict and disaster. And I felt it was a sleeping giant. And I felt I could help with that. I could bring the lessons of politics uh, to my leadership of a humanitarian organization. And thirdly, I, to be honest with you, my the, the fact that my parents had been refugees allowed me to feel that in some way I was closing a circle. Obviously, the people who are refugees today fleeing war and persecution are not the same religion as my parents in the they're not the same religion as my parents um world politics is different but in a small way i'm closing a circle by trying to make a difference for people who are the victims of war and persecution today and those three things have driven me over the last four years on a journey which has been uh, inspiring in various ways but also i have to recognize that Today, there are more refugees than ever before, yeah. and the gap between what they need and what they're given is greater than ever before. I want to I ask you about that in one second. We'll be right back with David Miliband. 
You could not have imagined when you took this job how much of a need that you would be filling or trying to fill. But we are facing a global humanitarian crisis because of uh, geopolitics in many different parts of the world. Now, talk a little about that. Yeah, I mean, it's actually incredible when you think that every minute last year, 24 more people were displaced from their homes by conflict or violence and or persecution. And you're right to say it's happening on all continents. It's uh, a feature of the modern world. 65 million people, that's one in every 113 people on the planet, has been displaced by conflict. 25 million of them are refugees. That means they've crossed a border into a neighboring state. 40 million are internally displaced. Syria is obviously the poster child for this. Five and a half million refugees into neighboring states. Seven and a half million people internally uh, displaced. But it's not just... Syria, obviously, you've got old wars carrying on in Afghanistan, in Congo, and new wars starting in South Sudan, and most recently in Myanmar, in Burma, uh, half a million refugees going into uh, Bangladesh. And what's striking is not just the scale of this exodus of people, it's also the fact that they don't go home. Less than 1% of the world's refugees went home last year. Uh, so the average length of a refugee's stay in a, outside their own country is 10 years. And actually, once you've been a refugee for five years, that average goes up to 21 years. And I remember when I, I went to the world's largest refugee camp in uh, Kenya, Dadaab, and I met this woman, she must have been 28 or 30, and I, she had three kids, and uh, I said to her, do you think you'll, she, it's Somali refugees in the Dadaab refugee camp, I said, do you think you'll ever go home to Somalia? And she looked at me and she said, what do you mean go home? I was born here. And this was a camp built in 1991-92 mm. as a temporary refugee camp. And I asked the camp management, of the 300,000 people living in that camp, how many were born there? And they said 100,000 had been born there. So this is a multi-generational problem. Yeah. And keeping people alive is only the first part of the battle. We can't, that can't be a sufficient definition of the humanitarian enterprise. It's got to be to help people thrive, not just to help them survive. And so that's why we're dedicating ourselves to not just healthcare and water and sanitation, but education, employment, the uh, things that will give people a chance to make something of their lives. You, uh, we, we talked earlier about the political tensions in Europe and the US, this issue of uh, refugees, migrants, and so on, are rife with political implications. And you've seen a real resistance. Every single one of these kind of right-wing populist nationalist campaigns have at its core a resistance to accepting uh, refugees, to accepting immigrants. That was true here, and it's true in all of these races in Europe. How much does that complicate what you're doing? Well, it does, obviously, because uh, nowhere more so than here. I mean, the U.S. has traditionally been not just a generous international donor to international aid, and the president's proposed to cut it by 30%, along with your diplomacy, but it's also welcomed refugees here. Um, the average across the administrations over the last 30 years has been 95,000 a year. The president's cut it to 45,000. We're one of the agencies that welcomes refugees at the airport, gets their kids into school, gets them into employment. So it affects us a lot. But obviously, it's, there's a bigger global message that's being sent. When America's in retreat, what is Jordan or Lebanon or Kenya or Pakistan meant to do when they have many times the number of uh, refugees? And it is striking to me. I mean, Jordan is your second closest ally yeah. in the Middle East. 
And it's got 650,000 registered refugees. The government says there's another 600,000 unregistered refugees. Um, the population is 7 million, 7.5 million. Yeah. And the king will tell you the country's at quote-unquote boiling point. Yeah. No, it's a huge And so it's a huge thing. Political and, crisis for equally, him. Equally, there's uh, – my diagnosis is, is uh, on this is that in the U.S., uh, there has been a failure to make the case over the last 30 years about what refugees are doing, how they contribute to the society, how, according to the Cato Institute, there's less chance of being killed by a refugee than there is of being struck by lightning in the uh, U.S. And we're paying the price now for that failure to make the argument and convince people about what refugees are contributing to the economy because and society. Because obviously from Albert Einstein to Madeleine Albright to Sergey Brin, refugees are people who know the value of freedom. They know what this country is giving them compared to the persecution that they've suffered elsewhere. And my goodness, they're not willing to waste that. I think the European example is a slightly different one. What's happened there is that in 2013 and 2014, you could see the roiling crisis in the Middle East was going to produce waves of refugees into Europe. Uh, the Pope went to Lampedusa in 2014 and said, the world is showing the globalization of indifference, which is an extraordinary phrase. Mm -hmm. And European leaders were so consumed with the Euro crisis and with the Ukraine invasion by the Russians that they didn't have the bandwidth or they failed to find the bandwidth to address the refugee crisis. And as you know well... Other than uh, Chancellor Well, hang Merkel. on. In 2013 and 2014, they failed to address it. Yeah, okay. It then hit a million people arrive in 2015, and one European leader is willing to stand up and say, hang on, this is not the European way to say we're not going to address this problem, not least because it's already in our doorstep, never mind on our... Uh, doorstep and she paid a big political price well, for did it. she i mean she's she's been uh, uh, re-elected um with um a, a share of the vote that fell in bavaria uh, undoubtedly but which held its own uh, elsewhere the social democrats actually the junior partners in the coalition paid a greater uh, price and uh, having been to germany recently what you see is a country coming to terms with a yes a big influx of people a million people are having their asylum claims uh, addressed and audited probably half that number 45 percent of that number will be allowed to stay and across the country uh, villages towns and cities are organizing the integration of those people in some ways trying to learn from american experience of integrating people and i i think that um funny enough i went to germany to berlin a year and a half ago and, and i met mrs yeah. merkel at the height of this argument in february 2016 and she had an extraordinary calm about it. And when I asked her why she was so calm, she said, look, I grew up in East Germany. Yeah. Um, I heard and learnt about the post-war movements of people. And then I saw with my own eyes the movement of people after the fall of the Berlin Wall. And this is part of the growing up, the change, the maturation of our society. And I think that she is determined to show that this is something that was right for Germany and has actually put Germany in a position where it's not just paying its historic debts, it's, it's showing the world the way to, to do this. The um, You saw how the issue has been um, used by the president, I would say, here, uh, linked to the threat of terrorism, um, in, and then uh, the immigration issue generally here linked to economic pressures that people are feeling. And we see this replicated... Uh, elsewhere. Merkel is an unusual leader in her willingness 
to stand up. How concerned are you about the political climate just shutting the door on and, and just uh, exacerbating what is already a massive humanitarian yeah, I, crisis? I'm very concerned because the humanitarian crisis is getting worse around the world. Western countries are tightening their belts when it comes to overseas aid, and they are closing doors when it comes to allowing refugees to come in. And so you have to be worried that the problems will get worse. And untended humanitarian crisis leads to further political crisis. That's the point about the King of Jordan saying he's at boiling point or his country is at uh, boiling point. I think the issue here that struck me in the campaign was the confusion between the refugees who the president said were a Trojan horse for uh, terrorism and the undocumented immigrants who he said were driving down wages and were a threat to uh, living standards. And the um, the fact is that wherever those two issues become intermingled, the undocumented immigrants in the UK would have been called illegal immigration, mm-hmm. and the uh, refugee issue, you end up with real uh, explosive volatility, politi- yeah. vol- political uh, volatility. Now, I also think it's important to say, though, that... When people say to me, what's it like to lead a refugee organization at a time of backlash? I always have to say to them, look, it's not just backlash. For every person who's afraid of a refugee coming to live next to them, there's someone who's going to stand up and say, hang on, this is my heritage. This is my country. I'm going around to those people. I'm baking them cookies. I'm going to make them part of my community. And it's polarization that's happening rather than just backlash. And I think that's what's happened elsewhere as well. And the requirement on policymakers is to get ahead of the problem rather than to always be playing catch-up, which is what is happening at the moment. Let me ask you how much you think this threat uh, and uh, uh, the uh, threat of or the the challenge of open borders uh, contributed to Brexit. Uh, and where where is that uh, where is that leading? Well, Brexit is leading to danger and potential disaster for the UK, not just economic uh, disaster, because uh, Britain is in the process of realizing that there is no such thing as a soft Brexit. Soft Brexit sounds cuddly like your dog. <laughs> My dog here, yes. There is, My dog, Mac, there is, for, there for is, listeners. Yes, there is no soft and cuddly Brexit. There is only hard Brexit. Hard Brexit that involves new rules that require new institutions to pay for them and new people to staff them. But you're right that Brexit was in part a reaction against the open movement of people within the European Union. Mm -hmm. Got to be careful because there was no open borders for people from outside the Mm -hmm. uh, European Union. But that was undoubtedly part of the uh, story. Um, David Cameron, I think, was overconfident about his ability to win the a referendum, and so didn't prosecute the argument that that there needed to be what's called in the European Parliament an emergency break that would allow countries with a high number of Europe, intra-European migrants to uh, put controls on. But it was undoubtedly part of the uh, story. However, the fact is that the areas that were most uh, virulent in their opposition to immigration into Britain were not those areas that had the most immigrants. That is true here in the so, U.S. as well. So, so the argument, those people are looking for an economic answer, and we've got to give them a better economic answer than shutting the door on people who are actually not affecting their lives. And that's undoubtedly part of the story here, because there was, a, there was yeah. as you say, there was a similar story. My own view is that this refugee issue, in a way, is a canary in the mine for the fate of globalization. Because after the Second World War, if you look at this historically... The world learned its lessons of the interwar period. It learned its lessons that global cooperation was necessary and that if it wasn't 
if it wasn't forthcoming, then there would be explosion. Refugees got rights in the same way that the United Nations was built, NATO was built, institutions of the post-war period of global cooperation were built. We're now at a point where I think if the rights of refugees are rolled back, that will be a harbinger for the fate of globalization itself. It will be a, it will be a telltale sign that the world can't organize to build a more stable, a more secure, a more equal form of globalization. And we're going to see retrenchment. And the ultimate, not just irony, but terrible paradox is that people who will suffer the most are those who think that they're actually helping themselves by bolting the door. And that's the core uh, of the modern political challenge for all parties, really. Before we run, uh, I, I need to ask you, do you ever see yourself going back and re-engaging in British politics? I mean, I feel very lucky to be doing what I'm doing uh, at the moment. And so I feel very committed to that. Whenever people ask me that, I always say, look, I don't know what I'm going to do next. I'm going to, what I do know is I'm going to do something that allows me to put my passion and my experience and whatever skills I have to good use. And I feel I'm making more difference at the moment leading a global NGO with, which helped 26 million people last year um, uh, than anything else. And as long as that's the case, that's what I'm going to do. Um, the, you know, it would being, be, a, being a, being a long-time observer of politicians, I put great meaning in the words at the moment, but we'll leave it there. Yeah, I, mean, I, I mean, I applaud you for what you're doing. You're doing the, the Lord's work here, and, I, and I, it's such important work. But um, um, clearly you still have a passion for uh, a whole range of issues that are involved with this but not limited uh, to it. And uh, I suspect we'll be hearing more from you. But I, I so appreciate you being here today, being at the Institute of Politics, and uh, look forward to future conversations. Thank you very much, David. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.